Welcome to the Equipping You in Grace podcast, hosted by Dave Jenkins. The Equipping You in Grace podcast is a podcast about helping Christians develop a biblical worldview in a conversational tone about issues inside and outside the church. Now, for today's episode, let's join our host, Dave Jenkins. Well, welcome back to the Equip You Grace podcast. My name is Dave, and I'm the host for this show. And today we're going to continue our short series talking about dealing with difficult emotions and things in our lives. So far, we've talked about anger, and we've talked about bitterness and resentment. And today we're going to talk about guilt and shame in our life. And, you know, these two topics are so important because... As I talk to people, have talked to people uh, over the years, many people struggle with an overwhelming sense of guilt and shame, especially in their Christian life. And what that does is it affects their assurance and it affects their communion with God. And so uh, I'm hoping that this episode will be really helpful for you and uh, for those who listen and watch the show. So... I'm going to use an example of Joe and Barbara. Now, Joe and Barbara are both solid Christians. They both spend quality time in the Word of God and prayer. They're routinely involved in the life and the ministry of their local church, and yet both struggle with guilt and condemnation. Joe has secret sins that are eating away at him. Barbara regularly feels guilty because she periodically overeats. While both have godly friends, they should be open up to uh, what they both need to understand is who they are in Christ. There are many people like Joe and Barbara. They're both involved in solid Bible-believing and practicing churches. They're regularly feasting at the table of the Lord in His Word and aiming to serve others. And yet, they often know very little of the practical peace that's been offered to them in Christ. They have no idea how to fight against guilt, condemnation, and shame of the gospel. And that is precisely why I'm doing this episode on addressing guilt and shame with the gospel today. Because there are many of you that either listen or watch this show, or you know somebody who listens and watches this show, that are like Joe and Barbara. They're struggling with secret sins that need to come out in the light, and they need to be open and honest and transparent about what's happening and what's going on in their lives. You see, it's only in the light that we can find freedom from secret sins and know the hope of practical peace that Jesus promises us in Christ. Furthermore, it's only in the gospel that now we are in Christ. You know, this show is designed to help Joe and Barbara. It's also aiming to help pastors and ministry leaders to help Joe and Barbara. So as we begin, let's consider Romans 8.1. And then let's move into the heart of what Paul has to say to God's people today. Well, Romans 8.1 begins with the word, therefore, which indicates that Paul is stating an important summary and conclusion relating to his preceding argument in chapters 1 through uh, seven. This verbiage is based on the first exclamation of victory that comes through Jesus Christ our Lord that we see in Romans seven twenty three through twenty five, which in turn is linked back to Romans seven six, where the idea of new life of the Spirit is first mentioned. And more broadly, Paul seems to be recalling his whole argument about salvation in Christ from Romans three twenty one to five twenty one. 
And so the word now in Romans 8.1, it matches the now in Romans 7.6, showing that the new era of redemptive history has now been inaugurated by Christ Jesus for those who are now in right standing before God because they are united to Christ by faith in his name. And so the summary, therefore, relates further to the whole argument preceding that in Romans 3 through 5. Now, no condemnation echoes the conclusion stated in Romans 5.1. Therefore, we have peace with and underscores the stunning implications of the gospel first introduced in Romans 1.16-17. As Paul immediately goes on to explain, there's therefore no, non, no condemnation for the Christian because God has condemned sin in the flesh by sending his own son, as we see in Romans 8.3, to pay the penalty for sin through his death on the cross. And so the following verses uh, then show that indwelling sin is overcome through the power of the indwelling spirit with 10 references to the Holy Spirit in Romans 8, 4 through 11. Now, many believers struggle with guilt and shame and condemnation. Romans 8, it marks a major change in focus in the flow of the this epistle. At, at this point, the apostle begins to delineate the marvelous results of justification in the life of the Christian. And he begins by explaining as best as possible to finite minds some of the cardinal truths of salvation. No condemnation as well as justification, substitution, and sanctification. God's provision of salvation came not through Christ's perfect teaching or through his perfect life, but through his perfect sacrifice on the cross. It is through Christ's death, not his life, that God provides the way of salvation. For those who place their trust in Christ alone and in what is done on their behalf, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Now, the Greek word katrakima, or condemnation, it appears only in the book of Romans. Here in Romans 8.1 and in Romans 5.16 and Romans 5.18. And although it relates to the sentencing for a crime, it is a primarily focus is not so much on the verdict as on the penalty that the verdict demands. As Paul has already declared, the penalty or condemnation for sin is death in Romans 6.23. And now Paul uh, announces the marvelous good news for Christians. There will be no condemnation, neither sentencing nor punishment for the sins that believers have committed or ever will commit. And the word no in the Greek is an empathetic negative adverb of time which carries the idea of complete cessation. Now, in his parable about the king who forgave one of his slaves an overwhelming debt in Matthew 18, 23-27, Jesus pictured God's gracious and total forgiveness of the sins of those who came to him in humble contrition and faith. That is the heart and the soul of the gospel, that Jesus completely and permanently paid the debt of sin and the penalty of the law, which is condemnation to death. For every person who humbly asks for mercy and who trusts in the Lord. Through the Apostle Paul, God assures his children that if anyone sins, we have an advocate with God, with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself is a propitiation for our sins, and not only ours only, but also for those of the whole world. 
world in 1 John 2, 1 through 2. Jesus not only pays the believer's debt of sin, but also cleanses him from all unrighteousness, as we see in 1 John 1, 9. And even more amazing, he graciously imputes and imparts to each believer his own perfect righteousness. For by one offer he, Christ, has perfected for all time those who are sanctified, as we see in Hebrews 10, 14, Romans 5, 17. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21 and Philippians 3.9. And even more than that, Jesus shares his vast heavenly inheritance with those who come to him in faith, as we see in Ephesians 1.3, in Ephesians 1.11, and Ephesians 1.14. It is because of such immeasurable divine grace that Paul teaches Christians to continually give thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints of light in Colossians 1.12. Having been qualified by God the Father, we will never, under any circumstance, be subject to divine condemnation. How blessed to be placed beyond the reach of such condemnation. And the truth that there can never be the eternal death penalty for Christians is the foundation of Romans 8. As Paul asks rhetorically near the end of the chapter in Romans 8.31, If God is for us, who can be against us? And again, who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies in Romans 8.33. If the highest tribunal in the universe justifies us, who can declare us guilty? It's extremely important to realize that deliverance from condemnation is not based in the least measure on any form of the perfection achieved by the Christian. Christians do not attain the total eradication of sin during our earthly life. It is that truth that Paul establishes so intensely and truthfully in Romans 7. John declares that the truth as ambiguously as possible in his first epistle in 1 John 1.8. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. And so the Christian's conflict with sin does not end until we go to be with the Lord. And nevertheless, there is still no condemnation because the penalty for all the failures of this life have been paid in Christ and applied by the Spirit. Nevertheless, there is still no condemnation because the penalty for all the failures of this life has been paid in Christ and applied by Christ and is even ongoing being applied by the Spirit as the Spirit produces the fruits of the Spirit in our lives. And it's also important to realize that deliverance from divine condemnation does not mean deliverance from divine discipline. Hebrews 12, 6 says, For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. Nor does deliverance from God's condemnation mean escape from our accountability to him. Galatians 6, 7 says, Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will reap. So that therefore that introduces Romans 8.1 refers back to the major theme of the first seven chapters of this epistle. The believer's complete justification before God, graciously provided in response to trust and the sacrificial death and resurrection of Jesus the Son. The divine condemnation from which believers are exonerated is without exception or without, and without qualification. It is bestowed on those who are in Christ Jesus. In other words, on every true Christian. Justification completely and forever releases the 
it releases every believer from sin's bondage and its penalty of death, and therefore fits him to stand sinless before a holy God forever. It is on this particular aspect of justification on which Paul focuses on in the beginning part of Romans 8. And Paul's use of the first person singular, I and me, in Romans 7, 7 through 25, it emphasizes the sad reality that in this present life, no Christian, not even an apostle, is exempt from struggles with sin. And so in the opening verses of chapter 8 of Romans 8, on the other hand, Paul emphasizes the marvelous reality that every believer, even the weakest, the most unproductive, shares in the complete and eternal freedom from sin's condemnation. The holiest of believers are warned that although they are no longer under sin's slavish dominion, they will experience conflicts with sin in this present life that is why we, what we call indwelling sin or remaining sin. Moreover, the weakest of believers are promised that although they still stumble and fall into the sin's power in their flesh, they will experience ultimate victory over sin in the life to come. And so the key to every aspect of salvation is a simple but infinitely profound phrase, in Christ Jesus. A Christian is a person who is in Christ Jesus. Paul's already declared this truth in Romans 6, 3-5. Being a Christian is not simply being outwardly identified with Christ, but being part of Christ. Not simply of being united with Him, but united in Christ. Our being in Christ is one of the most profoundest of mysteries, which we're never going to understand until we meet Him face-to-face in heaven. And yet, Scripture sheds light on this marvelous truth. We know that we are in Christ spiritually in a divine and a permanent union in him. For as in Adam we all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15.22. Believers are also in Christ in a living, participatory sense. Now, you are Christ's body, Paul declares in 1 Corinthians uh, 12.27, and individually members of it. We are actually a part of Christ, and in ways that are unfathomable to us now, we work when he works, we grieve when he grieves, we rejoice when he rejoices. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jew or Greek, whether slave or free, and we are all made to drink of one spirit. And so Christ's own divine life pulses through us. And so now we come back to the matter at hand. Having considered what scripture has to say about guilt and shame and addressing it in our lives in Romans 8 and in other passages in Romans, now we can get to talking about the application. Now, the key to dealing with guilt and shame and condemnation is to grow in our understanding of the gospel. As we saw, as we look at Romans 8, 1, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. The believer has a new identity. They have a new nature. The believer is now in Christ because of the work of Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. And because of the believer's new identity and new nature in Christ, every Christian can deal with guilt, shame, and condemnation since the gospel addresses these issues. The gospel addresses our guilt by showing us that Christ bore our sins and now offers forgiveness of sin through the cross and new life through the resurrection. 
The gospel addresses our shame because Christ took upon himself our shame and was thoroughly humiliated and yet died in our place and for our sins. The gospel addresses our condemnation because we justly deserve to be condemned to hell. But God in his grace and mercy offers us full pardon through the work of Christ. And so if you're struggling with guilt, with shame, with a litany of other issues, I want to encourage you to grow in your understanding of the gospel. By growing in the knowledge and understanding of the gospel, you're going to be able to deal with your guilt and shame. But most importantly, you're going to grow in what it means to be in Christ, which is a marvelous truth that one can drill down deep uh, upon until the day they go to be with the Lord. In Philippians 4.8, at the very end of that sentence, Paul says something really important. He says, after he said to, to think on what is lovely and noble and good, he says to think on these things. And that word think is so important because the word there, think, it actually in the Greek is a, is a word that just means uh, meditate. It's calling us to mold, to chew over those things. In that famous psalm, Psalm 1, the psalmist David is talks about biblical meditation, meditating on the character of God. And there, that word meditate, it means to think about, to chew on, to, you know, uh, to chew the cud, to uh, rehearse, to meditate, to, to take it home. So the more that we're reading and, and meditating and studying the word of God, the more that we're giving room for the Holy Spirit to take the word that we are reading, that we're studying, that we're meditating on, and even that we're hearing preached on the Lord's day. And he's going to use it to shape us to be more like Christ. You know, this is why even in the Psalms, we what we see is we see in the Psalms, we see David downcast in heart, for example, in Psalm 40 and Psalm 42. And yet what does he do? He says again and again in these Psalms, he says, hope in God. And yet again, I will praise the Lord. See, that's the key. He, David is down in the dumps. He's struggling. He's hurting. He's facing life. He's dealing with life really as it is day in and day out, like we all do with, with struggles facing him. And yet his perspective is changed because he reminds himself of the grace of God. He reminds himself of the character of God. Martin Lloyd-Jones in his classic book, Spiritual Depression, he, he instructs us that we need to re remind ourselves who God is and what God is like and, and basically take ourselves in the hand and rehearse the wonderful works of God, the wonderful ways of God, the attributes of God, the character of God, the glory and the beauty of Christ. That's what we're talking about here. And, and the more that you do this, the more that you uh, address yourself in this way with the gospel, you're going to be preaching the gospel to yourself, as Jerry Bridges said. And this is taking yourself in the hand and reminding yourself that if you are in Christ, as Paul says in Romans 8.1, for example, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Well, that, that looks like reminding yourself. Reminding yourself of the truths of Romans 1 through 3, that yes, you were once a sinner. You were once bound to hell. You were once defined by your sin, by sins of, of every kind and every type. And yet now, because of Christ, you are in him and he in you. You belong to him and he belongs to you. You are his and he is yours. And that is not a momentary thing. That is forever and always. You are signed, you are sealed in the blood of Christ if you belong to Jesus. And what that means is by rehearsing, by reminding ourselves of these things, 
of the gospel, of the beauty and the glory of Christ, what it, what it does is it thaws our affections. There is a reality in the Christian life that I don't think that we talk about enough. And it's this, we can become so focused on the daily stuff of life that we miss Christ in the midst of the stuff of our life. That is, that, that God is hand-tailoring the situations and the circumstances of our lives. But instead of realizing what he's doing and asking the question, Lord, and praying, Lord, what are you doing in the midst of this situation? What are, how are you at work? What lessons am I intended to learn and how am I to grow? That's a posture of humility. Instead, what we do is we often just coast through the Christian life and we think, you know what, I'm good you're good. Everybody's good. And yet Hebrews 3.13 has something to say to this as well. And speaking in the, in the corporate setting here, as Hebrews does, it reminds us that we are to encourage one another while today is today. We, that means that I need you and you need me. We need to be encouraging one another to, to spur one another on, as Scripture says, to love and to good deeds. We need to one another each other, as we're told over 50 times in the New Testament. And this is one of the areas where we need to ask some questions. When people come to us, they, they wonder, you know what, I'm struggling with guilt. I'm struggling with shame and, and other things. We need to ask, how are you doing at utilizing the means of grace. That is, how are you doing at spending quality time in the Word of God? How are you doing at spending quality time in prayer? Are you confessing and repenting of your sin? How are you doing at sitting under the preached Word of God? Are you being stirred afresh by the preached Word? Do you think about, how are you doing at meditating on the Word? How are you doing relationally with other people? Um, asking some of these questions, it dives into issues in our life. You know, what guilt and shame and, and condemnation can do is they can cripple our walk with God. And, and false repentance can do this as well. If you're not doing as, as Calvin and Luther taught and understanding that the Christian life is a life of repentance, if you're not continuing to keep short accounts with the Lord, here's what's going to happen. You're going to be in a perpetual cycle of false repentance. You're going to think, you know what? I'm good with God, but God is not honored by false repentance. God is not honored by you just being sorry for your sin. What he desires is for you to, to acknowledge it, to confess it, and to turn from it as we see David doing in Psalm 51. David acknowledged that his sin was against God. David confessed his sin against God, and David turned from the from his sin into the Lord. And he asked the Lord to renew in him a right spirit, meaning that he desired to walk in the ways of the Lord. That's exactly how we should address shame and guilt in our lives with the gospel. Taking ourselves by the hand, reminding ourselves, these were once things that, that dominated my life outside of Christ. This is my new life in Christ. If you struggle with guilt and condemnation, I also want to say something else. Go and read Colossians 3 over and over and over again. Some of you think, I got to read through the whole Bible. I, I, I can't just camp in one chapter. Can I just say something to you real quick? Please just camp in Colossians 3 for as long as you need. Okay, the, the, the Bible is still going to be there. The 66 books, they're still going to be there. They're still going to be there to, for you to read and to study and meditate and memorize. But by camping in this particular chapter, what you're going to discover is Paul talks about these things, how your life was hidden with Christ and God. And then he talks about who you once were, 
the, the, the things of the flesh, what your old nature. And then towards the middle of that chapter, what he says is that we're to put away our old selves and to put on Christ. And then he marks out those attributes, those keys in our life that are to define us now. In Galatians 5, 22 through 23, Paul talks about the fruits of the Spirit. These are things that the Spirit is producing in our lives. And by the way, God uses means. He uses means to accomplish the end, and that is our growth in Christ, which leads to our fully becoming like Christ when we die or to be glorified. And this, the, the, we, between the, the time when we're converted, we're brought in through the door of salvation by Christ, where he draws us and opens our eyes irresistibly to the beauty and glory of Christ, to the, to the time in which when we stand before the Lord and we're totally like him, Everywhere in between is a time when, you know what, we are to grow, as Peter says in 2 Peter 3.18, in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus. And this is so important for us. We live in between the time, but our eyes in between those times are to be on Christ. That's what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 12.1-2, to keep our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And in Ephesians 1, that from, from verse 3 to the end of the chapter, we need to remember that that's one long uh, paragraph in the Greek, one long sentence, one run-on sentence, if you will, in the Greek. And there Paul discusses how the grace of God continues to abound and abound and abound towards us. There is grace for today, there is grace for the present, and there will always be grace for the future not because of you and me, but because of Christ. Because of Christ, we have a future, we have a hope. And yet, even in the midst of the hope that we have, Paul says in Romans 6.11 that, that we are to consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God. That means that we are to put our sin to death because we belong to Christ. We are his and he is ours. Over time, I've canceled many people that have struggled with guilt and shame. And one of the reasons that they struggle with guilt and shame is they're not taking their sin to the Lord. They're not, they're not wrestling against the world, the flesh, and the devil, as John says in 1 John 2. It said they're just giving themselves over to the world. They become of the world. They become worldly. Worldliness cripples our walk with the Lord. Instead, what we've been called is to become like our Lord. In fact, to this end, we've been set apart by God in Christ uh, to a new way of life that we have broke it made a break with the old way of life and with its patterns and with its desires this is what first john talks about as it talks about love for god and love for neighbor and what that love is manifest and what it looks like in our lives that's another epistle i would encourage you to read and really dive into and and just and discover these are the marks that john talks about about a life that lo really loves God, that really truly uh, honors God. And John does a great job in First John talking about that. You know, even if, but even if there's only the tiniest sliver of evidence or fruit, praise God for that. Give thanks to God. Uh, another book I want to recommend is J.C. Ryle's book, Holiness. It's a great book. It's a, it's a little bit longer, but it's so helpful because he goes through and he talks about a lot of these things about holiness and how God is working uh, holiness in us in and through Christ and by the Spirit through our union with the Lord Jesus. And this is what God is doing. 
He's doing a marvelous work in us. From the beginning point of drawing us to salvation, where he opens our eyes and we are soundly converted, to the day that we're going to be totally, we're going to be with the Lord and we'll be totally like him. And you know what the reality is, is there'll be some times in our Christian life where we're going to struggle with guilt and shame and condemnation or a litany of other things. By taking ourselves in the hand, reminding ourselves of who we are in Christ, we're united to Christ by faith in his name, reminding ourselves and meditating on scriptural truth, thinking and chewing on it, taking it home, having other people remind us of these truths. We can grow in the grace of God. And not only will we grow, but we'll be able to speak to other people who are struggling with guilt and shame and condemnation. And we'll be able to show them that truly in Christ, there is no, there therefore now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Well, I hope that this has been a helpful episode for your life and godliness. Until next time, may the Lord richly bless you and keep you. Thank you for listening to the Equipping You in Grace podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, rate us on the app, and share this with your friends and family on social media. If you want to find us on social media, you can find us on Twitter at Servants of Grace, on Instagram at Servants of Grace, or by searching at Servants of Grace on Facebook. You can also find this episode and many others like it on the front page of our website, servantsofgrace.org.